We live in a society that's obsessed with a word called deconstruction. If you're unfamiliar with it, that's probably good. That means you don't spend a whole lot of time on social media. Uh, Deconstruction is just the new and hip word for apostasy. A person who has deconstructed the Christian faith is a person who has abandoned the Christian faith and recreated it in his or her own image. And apostasy is obviously something that has taken place in every age, right? Ever since Christ, there have been people coming to the faith and then leaving the faith. But it does seem like throughout the course of human history, there there are some time periods, some stages and ages, where apostasy seems to be far more widespread and far more prevalent than it is in other times. And I think that's certainly the case for us today in America. Apostasy is in vogue. It's, it's what all the cool kids are doing. Among those who have abandoned the faith for recently, for example, are some pretty not- notable people like a very famous author, Joshua Harris, um, popular Christian musicians like Dustin Kensrew and Jonathan Steingard, online Christian apologists like Paul Maxwell and Tyler Vela, and the wildly successful YouTube comedians Rhett and Link, who influenced millions and millions of children, uh, abandoned the Christian faith. Now, we are a Reformed church, and we teach Reformed doctrine. We think that the Reformed faith, uh, the theology of it, is the most accurate summary of the Bible. And so we do not believe that people can become unjustified. Uh, We hold to a doctrine known as the perseverance of the saints. And this means that the Holy Spirit will always persevere the faith and then therefore the salvation of those whom he truly indwells. In other words, we confess along with the Apostle Paul that I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It is God who begins the work of salvation in us and he sees it to its completion. He accomplishes it in us. He doesn't just sort of give it to us and trust it to us and then make sure that we do the rest. But now the question probably that goes through a lot of people's minds, maybe if, if you're a visitor, maybe this is the first time you've heard someone believe something like this, is how could we believe something like this when experience itself testifies to the fact that there are so many seemingly very genuine, convicted, committed Christians who abandon the faith? Well, the, typically the consistent response you'll hear from a Reformed person is they'll say things like, well, they never truly had faith to begin with. But how can that be? I mean, didn't they make the same confession as us? Didn't they go to church just as regularly, if not more regularly than us? Didn't they serve the Lord like us? Isn't it pretty arrogant on our end to claim, oh, that person just must not have actually believed? As a matter of fact, Paul actually had to warn Timothy in 1 Timothy 1.19. He told Timothy to continue to holding to sound doctrine with, with a pure conscience because those who have rejected this, he says, quote, have made shipwreck of their faith. How can people make shipwreck of a faith that they don't actually have? It seems the idea that apostates never actually believed flies not just in the face of Scripture, but widespread experience as well. I think that as we are in the Gospel of John and we're doing a sermon series just walking through the Gospel of John, the text that the Lord has for us today, I think it's going to help shed some light on this issue of apostasy and the nature of the apostate's faith. Now, by no means am I pretending like we're going to exhaust the topic of perseverance and apostasy. 
By no stretch of the imagination are we going to cover every verse that seems to teach perseverance and cover every verse that talks about falling away. Um, but I do think that the, the boundaries that our text sets for us today will help us to at least cover some really helpful in, information as to how the scriptures speak of the faith of people who fall away. And I think that will help give us some confidence and some hope as we live in a day and age where people all around us are making shipwreck of their faith. Would you open to John chapter 2 verses 23 through 25 please? John chapter 2 verses 23 through 25. When you have found that, I would invite you to stand for the reading of God's word. John chapter 2, 23 through 25, thus saith the Lord. Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. This bars the reading of God's word. Please be seated. So we learned, if you were with us last week, we learned last week that Jesus has entered into Jerusalem because it's the Passover. And John highlights this really important event that we studied last week where Jesus, was he goes into Jerusalem, he sees that a, a desecration has happened in the temple. They've set up the, the, the table booths for the exchanging of money and the selling of animals, and they've done that in the temple. So we saw this really big important scene last week where Jesus cleanses the temple. He drives everyone out of the temple. But here John is reminding us that the Passover feast, uh, this was not just a one-day thing, this was a week-long celebration. So although the main thing John wants us to know about Jesus' first visit to Passover was the cleansing of the temple, he gives us this little sidebar before he moves on to a new event. And he reminds us that Jesus did a lot of other things while he was in Jerusalem this week. He didn't just cleanse the temple. He was there teaching and performing miracles all week long. And these miracles were so great that people were believing in him. People were putting their faith in Jesus. However, John gives us this little spiritual mystical insight. That even though these people were seeing Jesus and believing in him, Jesus, as the ESV, was not entrusting himself to them. Uh, this is one of those verses, the Greek is, can be hard to translate completely accurately. So if you have a different Bible translation than me, it might read something a little differently. Uh, the, the ESV chose more of a meaning for meaning translation because they changed the words. In the Greek, the same word attributed to the believers is also attributed to Jesus. So in other words, you could translate it as saying something like, they trusted in Christ, but Christ did not trust them. They believed in Christ, but Christ did not believe them. That's some kind of message going on here. However, we, we want to get into the, the semantics and the technicalities of translation, though. I think that there's a broad idea that we're all picking up here. And that is that Jesus did not save these people. These people did not find union with Christ by their faith. Christ has not given himself to them. These people, in short, are not partakers in Christ. They've put their trust in Christ, but he has not reciprocated. He has not given himself to them. So I think that John's primary point in this little concluding section is probably to testify to Jesus' deity. 
That's what I think John probably is his most important point right now. He's, he's trying to transition because next week we're going to get into the conversation with Nicodemus and all this important stuff. So he's trying to conclude the Passover scene and he, and he just wants to testify again to Jesus' deity, right? Because in this text, clearly we have Jesus behaving as no mere mortal. He's not only performing divine power, which is what we call omnipotence. He has all power. So he's doing things that only God can do. But now John's reminding us that he has omniscience as well, all knowledge. He's able to know things that no mere man can know. He knows your heart. He sees into your heart. He doesn't need anyone to testify about men because he knows you deeply and intimately. And so I think John is probably yet again trying to elevate the deity of Christ, but I'm going to do something a little bit more topical today because as we've been going through John 1 and 2, I think we've really pretty firmly established the deity of Christ. John's been very, very clear that Jesus is both God and man in these two chapters. And so I want us to focus on this this bizarre incident where John just kind of passes over it like it's nothing. But this is really amazing here. Jesus just refused to save believers. I think that deserves a conversation. I think it would be helpful for us to explore Jesus' refusal to honor these people's faith. And I think that that will help us to make a little bit of sense of all of the apostates who have been shipwrecking their their faith all around us. As a matter of fact, what I think John has done here is he has really given us a picture of what faith looks like in an apostate before they fall away. I'm going to call it the apostate's faith. What does an apostate's faith look like before they eventually leave the Christian faith? And I believe that John gives us four characteristics of the faith of apostates. And the first one, and I think it's the most important one, is that it's real. It's real faith. Look at verse 23. Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. One of the most important points I think is if you're reformed especially, I think we really need to grasp this because I think in our casual conversations with Christians, we we tend to lose sight of this and and we say things that aren't entirely accurate. According to John, the faith that these people exercised was real. It's not fake. It's not counterfeit. It's not pretend. They were not faking faith, but the text says they believed. It doesn't tell us they pretended to believe. It doesn't tell us that they just wanted to put on a show, but but they weren't actually serious about this thing. The text tells us they believed. They exercised a real human natural belief. They exercised faith here. Their faith is real. And all of our great commentators have recognized this. For example, let me just give you a couple. Uh, John Calvin commenting on this verse says, When the evangelist says, therefore, that those men believed, I do not understand that they counterfeited a faith which did not actually exist, but they were in some way constrained to enroll themselves as the followers of Christ, and yet it appears that their faith was not true and genuine because Christ excludes them from the number of those on whose sentiments reliance might be placed. So Calvin is recognizing what I'm recognizing here. The Bible's not saying that this fake is fake or made up. It's real. There, there's obviously something wrong with it because Christ doesn't honor it, but it's, it's faith nonetheless. 
Francis Turretin says the same thing. The faith of the temporary is true in its own order because it truly receives the seed with joy and it is not fiend by those who thus believe, who not only think they believe, but really and truly believe. Hence, the text even says they believe. I know a lot of beliefs in there, but he's trying to hammer the point that I'm not making a mountain out of a molehill here. The text says they believed. This is real faith. And that's why I think it matters so much. Like, so when we talk about apostates and we say things like, well, they must not have ever really believed in the first place. They must have never actually had faith in the first place. The sentiment behind that might be true, but that language is is misleading and it's not entirely accurate. Because according to our slogans, according to our quick pitches, these people just were pretending to believe all along the way. It was fake. It, was, it wasn't real. There was really no faith there. They were just faking it the whole time. And then this confounds human reason and it makes us look silly because the apostates themselves are going, well, you can say that, but I know, that, I know my own experience. I know that I actually believed. <laughs> I know you're wrong. I know I believed. It's very plain to everyone. That these apostates were not pretending to believe. They had faith in Jesus. It was real faith. And so when they abandoned the religion, it is true that they made shipwreck of their real faith. They had a real faith and they crashed it into the shores of unbelief. Now, here's the problem that we're all confronted with. If their faith was real, then it had to have saved them, right? Because isn't that what we teach in this church? Right? Right? Aren't we part of the Protestant Reformation? We believe faith alone saves. We believe faith is the instrument where we receive salvation. We believe the Bible promises to save all those who believe. In just a couple weeks, we're going to read the famous John 3.16. For whoever believes shall not perish, but shall have everlasting Christ life. Is that true? Because these people believed and they didn't get it. If their faith was real, then they had to have been saved, Right? But I think that the passage is going to help clarify this real faith. And that is while the faith is real, it remains that it can still be defective. That's our next point. Apostate's faith is real, but point number two, it is defective. Look at what happens in verse 24. But Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people. Jesus looked in their hearts. He saw the nature of this real faith and said, I don't want any part of that faith. So the faith is real, but the implication of the text is that it was, it was defective in some way. It was lacking. It was, it was incomplete in some way, shape, or form. Whatever kind of faith that they exercised, it wasn't the kind of faith that Jesus is looking for. It's not the right kind of faith. Now, it's a defective faith. And, and I agree that that's my word. The Bible doesn't ever talk, use the word defective faith. That's my word that I made up. But just because a word is not in the Bible doesn't mean the concept's not in the Bible. It's called the word concept fallacy. For example, if you go to this church, you believe in the Trinity. The word Trinity is not in the Bible. The concept is very abundantly present, though. And so, here's what I'm getting at. Not all faith is of the same nature. Not all faith is of the same kind. You can't, when you read through your Bibles and read through your New Testaments, every time you see the word faith or every time you see the word belief, you can't assume it has the same meaning in every place. The Bible presents to us different kinds of faith, different kinds of belief. And again, this is, just not, my, this is not just my opinion. 
Theologians have recognized this. That's why in, in the confessions that we hold at this church, the authors of this confession were very careful to not include any section in the entire confession on faith. You will not go through any of the confessions we hold and find a section on faith. You'll find a section on saving faith. Why that adjective? Because our, the authors of our confessions recognize there are some kinds of faith that don't save you. So we don't want to talk about faith in a broad sense. We want to talk about the kind of faith that saves, and it's commonly referred to as saving faith. The implication being that there are non-saving faiths. There are faiths out there that won't save you. James, by the way, is abundantly clear about this. If, if you think, well, I don't care about the confessions, that's not scripture. I don't care about your opinion, that's not scripture. James understands that there are different kinds of faith. He says in James chapter 2, What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? So we have a certain kind of faith here, a, a worksless faith. And so James is going to analyze, is that faith capable of being honored by Christ? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. Can that faith save you? Can a dead faith save you? James's answer is no. It's worthless. But he's recognizing that there, there are other kinds of faith out there, faith that you can't call dead. There's a living faith and there's a dead faith. And so we have to ask the question, then let's go back to John 2. What was wrong with these people's faith? They're, this is so early on. They're not lacking works like James is talking about. What's defective about their faith? Well, let's look at verse 23. Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. Our text does not explicitly tell us what the issue is with their faith. So the answer to that question I just raised is, I don't know. I don't know. What was wrong with these people's faith so that Jesus, who could see it intimately at a level no one else could see, he says, no, that's not saving faith. That's not the kind of faith I'm looking for. What was defective specifically? I don't know. I can't tell you that. But we're given a little bit of a hint because we're told why they believed. And the text specifically indicates that they were believing because of the miracles. They were seeing the miracles and they were believing. And so I think that gives us a little bit of room to, to do some godly speculation here. Right? I, I tend to agree with Calvin when he speculated that their faith depended solely on miracles and had no root in the gospel and therefore could not be steady or permanent. Miracles do indeed assist the children of God in arriving at the truth, but it does not amount to actual believing. When they admire the power of God so as merely to believe that it is true, but not to subject themselves wholly to it. I think that's really good speculation. Let me summarize that. Calvin's point is that while God can use miracles among his children to confirm their faith and help get them over the hump of unbelief, to put our faith just just in Jesus, just because we saw how powerful he was, is a faith that oftentimes doesn't save. That's a faith that stays in your head. At that point, it's just an intellectual fact. Okay, this guy's God, he proved it. But saving faith doesn't stay in your head, it goes into your heart. You're not, believed in, you're not saved by Christ if you just merely assent to the historical facts. That's not saving faith. 
Believing that Jesus is Lord in your head doesn't save you. You need to trust Him. You need to love Him. You need to entrust yourself to Him. That's the kind of faith that saves you. Purely intellectual faith doesn't save. Again, James recognizes this. You believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. You realize the demons believe in God, right? Demons believe in God. Satan believes in God. Satan doesn't just believe in God. Satan believes in Jesus. Satan knows that Jesus is Lord of the nations. Satan knows that Jesus rose from the dead. Satan knows he was born of a virgin. Satan knows he died for sin. Satan knows and believes all these things. So does Satan have faith in Christ? Depends on what you mean by that. Yeah, he believes those things, but he hates it. He hates that reality. He has not embraced that reality. It's not enough if all your faith is is purely an intellectual assent to the facts of history. You're on the same level as the demons. (laughs) They know the history too. Saving faith, it goes beyond our heads. And so Calvin is thinking that they saw this evidence. And and so, of course, I'm going to affirm that, yeah, this guy's the Messiah because I have to. But I think Jesus maybe suspects, do you love me? Or are you just impressed with me? But maybe that's not it. Again, we're technically speculating here. But regardless of, of, of how we speculate, regardless of what we think, uh, we can recognize that there are lots of other reasons why a person could exercise faith in Christ and still not have it be saving faith. Right? One thing we see a lot in our culture is sometimes, a lot of times people will be Christians just because it's tradition. I just... Yeah, my parents were Christians and I was raised a Christian and my whole generation have been Christians and that's what we do in America. You be a Christian, you believe in Jesus and you go to church and if a surveyor comes to your house and asks if you're a Christian, you check the box. And That's a very dangerous faith. Oftentimes that faith doesn't save people. It's a good point of reflection for all of us in here to ask. I'm so thankful that Almost everyone in this room that I know is a faithful churchgoer. And that's a good thing and that blesses God. And you should keep going to church faithfully. But you need to remember that you are not saved by church attendance. You're saved by true and living faith in Christ. This is a good time maybe for us to examine our own hearts. Am I just a Christian because? Or do I love Jesus? Sometimes people believe in Christ because they think that putting their faith in Christ, becoming a Christian, will somehow be advantageous for them. It will actually benefit them some way. It's a selfish kind of faith. As a matter of fact, we have a crystal clear example of this in Scripture. In Acts 8.13, there was a pagan magician, a sorcerer, who got converted by seeing the amazing works of the apostles. The apostles went into his town and his name was Simon. And it says that after encountering the apostles, even Simon himself believed. And after being baptized, he continued with Philip and seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. So here we have this pagan who meets the apostles and he's amazed. These guys are amazing. So he believes in Jesus and he gets baptized. We have a baptized believer who's now walking around with the apostles. But guess what happens just a couple verses later? He sees another miracle and he decides, I want to be able to do that. So he goes up to Peter and he offers to pay him to teach me how to do this miracle. I will give you money if you teach me how to get the Spirit. And notice, notice Peter's harsh words with a baptized believer who is still professing Christ. He's not abandoned the faith yet. 
He's professing Christ. He's a baptized believer. And notice what Peter says about his faith. But Peter said to him, May your silver perish with you, because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have neither part nor lot in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours, and pray to the Lord that, if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. Peter is looking at a baptized believer, not a former believer, not an apostate, a baptized believer, and saying, You're not saved. Your heart is not right with God. Whatever faith Simon exercised, it wasn't saving faith. It was a selfish faith. And when he offered to buy the Holy Spirit, that was red flags for Peter. And Peter said, I don't know what kind of faith you put in Christ, but it's not the kind of faith that makes your heart right with God. You need to repent. And he says, I already did that. I repented and got baptized. No, you need to truly repent. This was a person who put his faith in Christ for selfish ambition, for selfish gain, and it didn't save him. So I guess what I'm saying is that what makes the faith of the men and women in John 2 defective? I don't think we know. I think it maybe varies from person to person. But we nonetheless learn in general that it is possible to have a real but unsaving faith, a real but a defective faith faith. But that's only two of the things that I think we learn about apostates' faith. We also learn something very important. We've kind of already hinted at it, and that's this. The faith of apostates is imperceptible. It's imperceptible. Look at verse 25 with me. That Jesus, after we are told he did not entrust himself to these believers because he knew all people, Verse 25 dives into that concept and needed no one to bear witness about man for he himself knew what was in man. <laughs> what the specific nature of this apostate faith is before us we're not told but what is crystal clear in the text is that it's something you and I can't see. Jesus knew their faith was not genuine but how did Jesus know it? Because he's God. <laughs> Because he can see places that we can't see. Because he can see people's hearts that we can't see. So the implication of this is unless you're God, you're not going to be able to spot it. To us, defective faith is imperceptible. To everyone but Jesus, defective faith, at least for a time, looks exactly like saving faith. From the outside, there's no... Apparent difference, right? And let me quote Turton again. I've, I've quoted him once. Let's quote him again. It is not a true and living justifying faith, he's talking about this, in which sense it is even called hypocritical because it is emulous of the faith of the elect and has an external resemblance to it, although destitute of its truth. <clears throat> And so great is its similarity to it, often that a greater is not seen between an image and its prototype. Hence, not only others who see them are easily deceived by them, but the believers themselves are also deceived and impose upon themselves, not feigning, but believing that they are truly believers. God alone, who searches the innermost recesses of the heart, alone knows the truth. Still, it is certain that there is a manifold and most essential difference, which shows that they mutually differ not only in degree or duration, but in very kind and nature. Again, I know that's a lot of words, but I can briefly summarize that. Turton is saying in the same way that if I were to go and make a photocopy of something I wrote and then hand them to you and say, which one is the original? 
be very hard. These copies are so much alike in their outer appearance, it would be very difficult to know which one is the original and which one is the copy. And Turton is saying, that's that's what happens with this defective faith. It it copies and emulates saving faith so well, it's, it's very difficult, at least at first, for us to see the difference. Jesus alone is the only one who knows that these people don't truly believe. And so the fact that apostate faith looks so much like saving faith, this is why we're so shocked when people fall away. This is why we're, we're so amazed by it. Because from all outside perceptions, these people looked genuine. They, oftentimes they don't give a lot of signs or indications that they're lacking saving faith. Because the, the true nature of their faith is oftentimes imperceptible to all but God. However, I do need to qualify this though. Um, This is not to say that a defective faith will never expose itself. It it usually, in most cases, it will eventually make itself known. There's just this time period where it just looks just like saving faith. For example, we can know a person had a defective faith all along if they stumble into unrepentant sin, sin that they refuse to repent over. Unrepentant sin reveals the true nature of their faith. This is why Jesus can say things like, we know a tree by its fruits. This is, why, this is how Peter knew Simon's faith was false. His works revealed the nature of his heart. This is why James could call faith without works dead. The dead works reveal the nature of the faith. Again, as we said, just unrepentant sin, that's why we practice church discipline. Because unrepentant sin ultimately reveals the nature of a person's faith. Which again is exactly what the Apostle John tells us. The same John who wrote this gospel wrote an epistle wherein he says, No one born of God makes a practice of sinning for God's seed abides in him and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God nor is the one who does not love his brother. So John certainly seemed to be under the impression that given enough time in testing our works and the way we live our lives will begin to reveal the true nature of our faith. And speaking of 1 John, I think it would be really important for us to uh, look at the, the most obvious thing a person can do to reveal to you that their faith was not saving. So keep your marker in the Gospel of John, but turn to 1 John chapter 2. I want us to read this together in our Bibles. There is one sure tell sign that a person's faith was not saving. First John. So you're going to go pretty far to the end of your New Testaments. If you get to Revelation you've, or Jude, you've gone too far. First John chapter 2, verses 18 through 20. The apostle writes this, Children, it is the last hour, and as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know that it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they all are not of us. But you have been anointed by the Holy One, and you have all knowledge. 
True faith, according to John, perseveres. That's one of the signs of saving faith. It doesn't fall away. Defective faith alone is the kind of faith that falls away. Thus, when a person rejects the Christian faith that they once believed, we can know with confidence that that faith that they had was not saving. This is John's analysis after all, right? He could not be more clear that they went out from us to prove, not that they're no longer of us, that they were never of us. And he, he, he doubles down on this, pushing so far that, that if they were truly of us, what would we have seen? Perseverance. They would have remained. Perseverance is so inevitable to saving faith that when people leave the church, it makes manifest that they didn't actually have it. It was real, but it wasn't saving. It was not true. It was not the same kind of faith that we have because that's what he says in verse 20. But you have been anointed by the Holy One. The implication is what? They never actually were. There's a difference between your faith and theirs. You've received knowledge. You've been anointed. They never have. How do you know that, John? Because they left. (laughs) If they had received the same anointing as us, they wouldn't have left. They would have remained. Saving faith perseveres. And so apostasy, unrepentant sin, these are ways that defective faith will eventually make itself known. But it's important for us to remember that for a time being, it's imperceptible to us. We can't know a person's heart. And so this leads us nicely to our final qualification of the nature of the apostate's faith. We've looked at the fact that it's real, yet in some way defective. And we've looked at the fact that it is imperceptible to us. The last thing we need to see is that it is temporary. Just like John's saying here, it is temporary. Go back to John chapter 2 and let's look at verse 24. But Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people. You want to know how saving faith is able to persevere and defective faith isn't? The answer is that is one word. Christ. Jesus. He's the answer to that. Jesus, when you truly believe, Jesus entrusts himself to you and now he becomes the source of your strength. He now becomes the source of your faith. This is why the book of Hebrews can refer to Christ as the author and finisher of our faith. But since Christ never entrusts himself to defective faith, that faith lacks the power of God. it's, It's running purely on natural power. It's running purely on human power. It's not running on divine power. And so that's why when hardships of life come, this faith almost always falls away. This is why dead faith is so often shipwrecked Again, just because he's one of my favorite theologians and I'm trying to push him on you, Turretin says, When we speak generally about faith, let us know that there is a kind of faith which is perceived by the understanding only and afterwards quickly disappears because it is not fixed in the heart. And that is the faith which James calls dead. But true faith always depends on the spirit of regeneration. The difference between true faith, saving faith, and defective temporary faith is the power of God the anointing of the Spirit of Christ. The other faiths are going to fall away. The faith of regeneration will not. And I think Jesus gives us a parable about this. Again, keep your marker here. Turn to the Gospel of Matthew. 
I think Jesus gives us a really helpful parable about this. Jesus actually interprets his own parable. We're not going to read the interpretation. I'm just going to say it to you. But if you doubt me, you can, you can read it yourself. But let's just look at the parable in Matthew chapter 13. We'll begin in verse 3. These great crowds have come around Jesus and they want some teaching. So he's going to give it to them. Matthew chapter 13. Look at verse 3 with me. Speaking to the crowd, verse 3, And he told them many things in parables, saying, A sower went out to sow. And as he sowed, some seeds fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured them. Other seeds fell on rocky ground, where they did not have much soil, and immediately they sprang up. But since they had no depth of soil, or forgive me, other seeds fell on rocky ground, where they did not have much soil, and immediately they sprang up, since they had no depth of soil. But when the sun rose, they were scorched, and since they had no root, they withered away. Other seeds fell among the thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked them. Other seeds fell on good soil and produced grain, some a hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. He who has ears, let him hear. So Jesus goes on to define and, and give an explanation of this parable where he, he tells us that, that there's four groups he's looking at here. The first group are people who hear the gospel, but they misunderstand it. They believe in something that, that's not true. They misunderstand the gospel and Satan is able to snatch out any truth that was present from them. And then there's others who receive the gospel. They receive the word, but then they put a, a rootless faith in Christ. There was something wrong with their soil so that their faith never actually had a root. So they have this temporary faith, but as soon as the going gets tough, they're toast. They choose comfort over Christ. Others hear the word and simply never believe at all. They just reject it. So those really are, broadly speaking, the three categories of people. Some people hear the gospel and reject it outright. Some people hear the gospel and misunderstand it and put their faith in a false gospel. Or some people will put a rootless, defective faith in the true gospel which will eventually fall away. And then there's one option left over for us, true believers. They put a rooted faith in Christ. And these bear fruit. They withstand the sun. They withstand the birds. They withstand the thorns. They withstand the dry ground. This is a faith pruned and nourished by God, protected by the Spirit forever. Now again, I need to make another qualification. It is true that a defective faith oftentimes falls away. But it is possible for it to endure throughout a person's life, especially if they have a pretty easy life. There are some people who do take a defective faith to the grave with them. But Jesus reminds us that their works, nonetheless, were never consistent with true and saving faith. Because notice what he says to them on Judgment Day. Whoops, forgive me. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, cast out demons in your name, and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. These people were professing Christ, and they even had some outward works that made their, their defective faith imperceptible to us. But nonetheless, Jesus knows their hearts, he knows their works, and he says, you did not commit yourself to the will of God. You were workers of iniquity. It was a dead faith. It looked good, but it was dead. And that's why Jesus was able to tell them, not, I knew you for a time, and then I stopped knowing you. 
but that I never knew you. I never entrusted myself to you. You were never saved to begin with. You never had a relationship with me. I have never known you. You confessed me, just like in John 2. You said you believed, but I did not give myself to you, you worker of iniquity. They had a real faith, and, and to a lot of people, I'm sure it looked real saved, but not to Jesus. Their faith was futile. It was not saving faith. So, let me just conclude with this. I understand it can become discouraging to see so many people in the public and maybe in your own personal life who are shipwrecking their faith. But do not let these evil days destroy your hope. Do not let them take your confidence. Keep in mind that the Lord will hold fast to those who are truly His. Christ Jesus will lose none of those whom the Father has given them. The Lord will save those who are His. And that's why I want to end with Scripture. I want to leave you with something that the author of Hebrews wrote. Because it's just too, the, the circumstances are too fitting. In, in Hebrews 6, the author of Hebrews describes at length this nasty, nasty thing called apostasy. Of people tasting of the heavenly goodness, tasting of the Spirit, and then falling away. But then... He wants to encourage his crowd. He's writing to believers and he knows that they're probably thinking, is, is he trying to insinuate I'm not saved maybe? Is he trying to tell me that I'm not saved? And here's the encouragement he leaves with them and, and I want to leave it to you. So this is the book of Hebrews speaking through me to you. In case you're discouraged or doubting your salvation, I, I want to lead you with what he says after talking about apostasy. He says this, Though we speak in this way, Yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. For God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints, as you still do. And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness to have the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. 